positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating our citizens as less than human. God damn America. Yeah. Probable ribs, and then um, wow, Alex started the show and then got up and left. Walls <laughs> move. Left us to his uh, his classic oh, yeah. New York window with the fucking brick wall behind him. <laughs> it's just no, no joke. A, he's in a broom closet. That's a broom <laughs> behind him. <laughs> I don't know where he is these days. All right, hello. Is that a yeah, it looks it's, like a Dyson. Is that a Dyson? Is that a Dyson? Don't, the Dyson? don't zoom my don't zoom me. I'm just saying you should work <laughs> Don't properly. you dox my vacuum brand on enhance, air? Enhance. You have a British who sells those? Is it an actual British guy who comes to your apartments like Yeah, it's the Dyson vacuum guy. Hoover. You need a Hoover. He sells it door to door. Speaking of sucking. Whoa. Megan is in the news. Sorry, I'm trying to do it. <laughs> You know what? You know who else sucked properly? <laughs> Actually, more than properly. What, you just well. steal my bit that I was stealing from you? Oh, he's, he's, he's adding. We're we're a cooperative. It's a collaborative effort. That's what it is. If you've been on Twitter for the last twenty four hours, then you've probably heard the news. Nancy Reagan is the official blowjob queen of history. <laughs> well, history is debatable. Maybe American history. Yeah. Well, Are of- America's 39th throat goat. <laughs> Her and uh, Superhead, I think, are tied. <laughs> oh, shit. would have to have a, you know, yeah. an you off. You took me back. An off-off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the first <laughs> deck. Is um, she dead? Is that why everyone... Is talking about it because they're like, well, yeah, now that no, she's dead. Classically, Abby, uh, who My also, girl, by the way, judging mm. from shout out, uh, shouldn't comment on her adequacy with the uh, oral <laughs> arts. I don't know one way or the other about classical, no! Abby, but she was saying that uh, she's saying, Hey, look at Madonna who had a nip out in a photograph of her at age 63. But she looked her, great though because she's she looked awesome. great. I don't know how much of it was touched up, but I'm gonna assume none. Uh, I mean, it, her it whole just, body is made of science by now. If that's what you mean, but. <laughs> her entire yeah. body was yassified. <laughs> <laughs> Not nothing. There's nothing wrong with this. Oh no, yeah, you know, call it what it is. I mean, these are the lives of the wealthy people. She's living her best life. Old and looks <laughs> not like. A human really she was actually in i believe she was had a photograph book made in the 80s when she was dating vanilla ice where there's a little bunch of sex acts in the book mm-hmm. madonna and uh isn't that right i don't know anyway in vanilla ice and the yeah. post is it's it's 63 year old madonna looking looking hot and then 64 year old nancy reagan with her grandchildren uh and She's not looking so hot, folks. She's looking like a <laughs> traditional 64-year-old Nancy Reagan. Yeah. And she's saying, classically, Abby is saying, don't don't you want to be like Nancy Reagan? Yeah. What do you want to look? I, I think I saw that one. What do you want to look like in your future, right? Like, which one do you choose, right? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Here's your statement about (laughs) the traditional path and then the decadent lib path of becoming Madonna and having a fake ass and stuff. Kind of murky what she was really trying to say or who she was trying to stick it to, but this entirely got derailed by a lot of people chiming in to let her know that this is a false premise to begin with because Nancy Reagan, even though she might be looking prim and proper at the age 64, cannot escape her past. She she's cannot escape demon. her past. Yeah, she's a fucking demon, yeah. She's a yeah. cool. Which is that she was the throat goat of Hollywood. <laughs> right. During <laughs> like the a dick sucker demon. Okay. Shit. There's a whole Wait, kind did of you demon say during the McCarthy it. era? Well, maybe before that. But it probably during, so maybe she got out of it. Uh, she there was some dick. Yeah. Have you now or have you ever <laughs> nodded in my mouth? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was I've been reading. <laughs> I've been reading this uh, book landslide about uh, the Reagan administration, and it's interesting with first ladies how much ambition they often have because uh, there's an old ex- saying about Hillary Clinton that. She and Bill were traveling in 92, and uh, they go through Illinois, and they see one of Hillary's old boyfriends. And Bill is like, ever think if uh, you had married that guy (laughs) instead of me? And she says, well, if I had married that guy, he'd be president right now. And like behind every behind every man is a stronger woman or some shit like that. Exactly. Yes. And Nancy Reagan expression sucking his cock from the back. (laughs) (laughs) And Nancy Reagan, nay Davis, which I don't know if I've ever heard that term out loud. Nay, that's like, yeah, I didn't know how you pronounce it like that. Like that's her maiden name. Right, right. Uh, (laughs) Davis. She uh, apparently the similar expression about her and Ronald if she had married him before his first wife, then he wouldn't have ever gone into politics because he would have been like the top of the line actor in Hollywood winning a thousand awards instead of just a bimbo himbo GE spokesperson. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she was, yeah, she had uh, willpower behind, you know, everything she did. She was, she uh, viewed as, she had an astrologist and that's basically, it's crazy because that is the actual reason Reagan one was reelected is because she consulted an astrologist. It happened to be good decisions, which that she was basically in charge of all of his political decisions. He didn't so know wait, what the fuck was going to, on. Well, the they stars were, were in charge. Well, yeah. they were they were into soy culture, like because I'm assuming all these right wing lent jobs, they think like astrology. I mean, I don't even know if they know anything about it, but I think normally you would think that's some like soy left shit. You know what I'm saying? Like weird, mm-hmm. kooky, like, you know, uh, belief system shit. But so you're saying that like it was actually the right that like brought that shit in and popularized it to the point that Reagan became president. Well, the Reagan's I, the world Hollywood weirdos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, Except, yeah, they're from true. like the light and magic show era where uh, fucking L. Ron Hubbard got his start with the, you know, with the weird cult parties and okay. shit. Uh, I, I don't, this. I don't think they were, I think that was like kind of a secret though, that she was into okay. astrology. It was like, cause it was, you know, somewhat of a embarrassment when it came out that she, she consulted one. You know, there's um, actually this famous story that the Reagans, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, were walking down the street one day, and they uh, they saw one of Ronald Reagan's ex girlfriends, and he, uh, Nancy turned to him and said, do, "What do you think your life would be like if you had married her?" 
And he was like, well, she would be the throat goat. Of the- <laughs> <laughs> throat goat of it's history. The real story. Um, we should fucking intro the show. This got derailed. <laughs> Extensively. Uh, well. The train Hello. went to a different station. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Jake Flores. That's Alex Patek. Hello. That's Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. Can I just get one more thing out about the Reagans? I don't think I can stop After you. we <laughs> introduce Aaron. <laughs> All right. Jesus Christ. You can't cut off. Hold like five seconds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Trillbillies, Aaron Thorpe. Welcome back to the show, man. Yo, what's up, y'all? Thanks for having me back on. Of course. And we are going to eventually talk about Dairy Dob, but we are still deep into the throw go uh throw go We're deep inside <laughs> the esophagus of the introduction <laughs> of the show uh, well this is here i'll find a way to connect it <laughs> i already did this like 10 minutes ago fine if you know go ahead please <laughs> i just want to say last picture of ronald reagan because he died in 2004 but the last picture of him that I could find was from 1994. So there's like 10 years there where we don't know what the fuck was happening to him. You remember when he died? I guess it was 2003. You didn't see any photos of him that were recent. It was like they, mean, they held him up in some fucking coop somewhere. <laughs> he became a ghost or a gremlin or one of these, you know, something. Uh, I'm sure some, Derrida would have something very extraordinary to say yeah. about the Elder Ronald Reagan. You're implying they had him buried alive in a crypt just to prepare <laughs> him for his yeah. time in the afterlife. He yeah. became a specter of, uh, mm-hmm. of American politics, of modern That's American right. politics. And yeah. truly, Is that because, the segue you were going in? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> I mean, okay. if I was going to actually guess what they did with him, I would say they took an empty stable where the horse had passed away recently, <laughs> and put him in the corner there, and he just kind of checked out until his heart stopped working. I mean, yeah. he had no brain, like, while he was president. While he was the president! <laughs> and that was way earlier! Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why they didn't just put him down, honestly. <laughs> I mean, just make him, like, yeah, let him out on, like, a farm on a pasture and just make him, like, feel the grass beneath his uh, his toes and his feet. Touch grass, run around. Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, <Fog man>. off! <laughs> but this does relate to uh, the hauntology. He effectively is still the president, if you really yes. think about it. Yes. Ooh, sure. Okay. You you could one could say that uh, with the kind of rise of neoliberalism and its entrenchment in the political economy that uh, we've been uh, this has been a long 40, 50 years, one could say, you know, mm. I'm going to okay. get this out of the way up top. I did not mm. do the reading. So what I'm going to do <laughs> is ground the episode and let you know if you're really connecting with the average uh, voter. Yeah. You'll be our barometer for for yeah, for uh, the normies. Is that what you're okay. Saying? Gavel, gavel, gavel. <laughs> I'm banging my gavel. Gotta, <laughs> the grounding is a good idea. Let's okay. let's discuss from the base here what we're talking about today because this is pretty heady postmodern bullshit that gets real slippery and you can, you can, and we're gonna veer off into crazy town real yeah. quick. It's so, like Nancy Reagan's mouth in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hauntology, okay, the topic of today, something I wanted to talk about. 
that uh, that Aaron wrote a little bit about recently and that I've kind of had on the brain and that heavily plays into like culture. Me and Aaron would talk a little bit about culture, you know, mm-hmm. pop culture and shit like that. And uh, so th- I, this the hauntology essentially let's just define it let's do a hack uh essay you know hauntology is defined as so derrida one of the postmodernists came up with this term it's a mashup of haunting and ontology ontology is like a a philosophical term about um you know the existence of a thing yeah. and haunting is haunting or it's like it's like a just, i just, I, like just for all the uh, philosophy nerds who are triggered out there because they're like eh, derrida is not a postmodernist yes he is okay. we know it when we see it uh we're gonna call him one and you can't stop us what yeah. is he? What do the, the people say? He's like a post-structuralist or something? Some bullshit. Whatever, so a, a deconstructivist. Yeah, shit. deconstructivist or whatever. Yeah, yeah. nobody cares. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's bo- well, here's the conversation. Bubble. How do you pronounce his name? Derrida. Derrida. No, I have no idea. Where's the little accent? Derrida. 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 I pronounce it in the South, yeah. Yeah, you're Southern intellectual. Derrida. And thus begins the Cajun philosophical treatise. Um, <laughs> I think you will say Derrida, but he, I don't give a shit. Um, so he ta- he sort of came up with this term hauntology that describes he was talking about like um, the kind of malaise post the fall of the Soviet Union and how uh, there is still a specter of communism, ironically, even though it uh, doesn't exist anymore. The right is still very much triggered by communism. I mean, you see it today mm-hmm. all the time. You know, fucking Lauren Boebert and all these people are like mm-hmm. acting as if communism is coming to kick down their door at any minute. And, they, you know, it's very advantageous to them to act like there's this threat because they get to trigger all of their Dale Gribble sort of you know, voters and stuff into mm-hmm. thinking it's happening and that therefore I need to go yeah. storm the Capitol or vote for Trump or whatever the fuck. Right. Um, so he's talking about how that's ironic because it's like something that's dead, uh, <laughs> like still exists very much in the minds of people, but also there's, so there's kind of two modes he described, which is one that, that is like, um, you know, wh- when communism was a specter in, in like w- in real time, mm-hmm a ghost can be in the future something that's like scaring you is you know into thinking oh if we don't do this or that history can veer off in this one direction that's future ghost mode past ghost mode though the one that's kind of most used when talking about this is um like he talks kind of about like um like lot like this longing for like nostalgia like lost lost yeah. futures is the term the that lost they- future yeah a morning for like a lost future and uh jake i just wanted to say too that like you just made me think about it like usually like when you like uh, watch like i'm thinking of poltergeist as like a ghost movie and there are a ton of them like that but like there's always the anticipation the exorcism of trying to like you know get this ghost to stop haunting you you know so it is very much like all these ghost stories really are based in kind of like this sense of like the future and time moving forward because it's i guess the anticipation or the anxiety right of still being continued to be haunted you know what i mean so yeah like like um as fisher says and we'll get to that but it's like it that the neoliberalism 
or late capitalism is haunted by the disappearance of communism, not the apparition of it, you know? Right. And I think the Democratic Party is like one of the you mentioned the right, but the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders especially is like a great example because they're haunted from all the I guess the uh, the what, what didn't happen after the New Deal coalition fell apart and the civil rights movement and so on and so forth, you know? And yeah. It's funny, you know what they love to say that liberals love to say this that, uh, and this even with uh, people like Evo Morales or whoever, they're like, "Oh, these are old ideas. We need new mm. ideas. These are old seventies People say this about Corbyn all the time. He sounds like he's from the seventies. Yeah. God forbid. You mm. know, that's a way of dismissing is is alluding to the past. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The seventies. I mean, specifically the seventies, because like, I mean, we'll get to this, but that's kind of like uh, where arguably like a lot of history like kind of ends and like Mm -hmm. you kind of do need to reach back to the 70s if you want to do anything because after the 70s we made the neoliberal turn and then you know politics became gobbledygook or whatever but we'll (laughs) i'm jumping a little ahead of myself but so so just so you know if you've seen this term around if you follow like deluge freaks and stuff like that on twitter and you see jokes about hauntology it's a very slippery thing it's been defined by a bunch of people in a bunch of different ways so uh you know essentially we're talking about this this sort of like um the the big term that's used is disjointed this like disjointed way of haunting through time whether it be a specter in the future or this like lost opportunity in the past um lost futures is is a big concept in it like um and i I think that's very similar to something we talk about on the show a lot uh known as counterfactuals you know the whole what if machine Mm -hmm. what if fucking so-and-so had won world war ii or whatever um these are things that you know politically kind of hang in the air and influence our culture just wondering you know if one pivotal fucking thing that led us to where we are here had gone a different way um yeah, a lot of people like talking about those. I'd say around one in four people on any given podcast can't stop talking about. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Would you name that what person? If, okay. What uh, if it was? What if it was three out of four though? <laughs> but it's not though, is it? It is one out of four. Bit, okay, but what if it was? But four kind of cuts back to the whole core of the situation that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, well, we only have. You know, really, it's one in three plus a guest sometimes. Plus a guest yeah, but sometimes. we're haunted by another one who. Uh... It's true. Ah, the specter. The rug of the meta specter. The meta specter. One thing. Um, so I did not get through most of this, but it did. I did read the opening, and it starts with a very compelling point, which is how uh, living in the twenty first century. For everyone our age, you know, millennials, uh, people who grew up in the 90s and 2000s, culture now feels like a reiteration of the culture that was developing 50 years ago with like different uh, 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 lens filters on it. Like just kind of the same shit that we're pretending is different. I don't know. That really resonated with me. The book that Alex just referred to uh, is kind of what we're talking about today, which is Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, 
which is um like a hundred and something page uh like 170 zero. it's really it's really sh- collection of essays it's really short i should yeah like been been my life folks <laughs> It's a Mark Fisher book put on zero books in like 2014. And it's about this concept. So he's kind of reworking Derrida's hauntology idea. And um, I didn't finish it either. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a a long meandering thing, even though it is rather short because he he talks about the concept in it. And I I jumped around the book a little bit because it goes Mm -hmm. in and out of like talking the theory a little bit. It's kind. It kind of reminded me of Chuck Klosterman, the way like it's a series of essays where he's diving into these pop culture things and then working out philosophy in them. No, um, but I think he's probably smarter than Chuck Klosterman. Definitely, um, <laughs> because Klosterman's famous for being a thing that you read in college. It's just like Saved by the Bell was a weird show. Coffee table book, right? But this is like materialist Marxist coffee ta- uh, claustroman. I arguably, <laughs> yes, that's what I was thinking when I wrote it. So anyway, he's a redhead. Um, <laughs> that book, though, that that's the one where he starts off talking about all this, and the kind of first thing that he works through is uh, talking about how um, you know our the moment that we're living in is really weird. The twenty first century is odd if you think about music especially because um if you track music from like the second half of the 20th century you know every 10 years music changed in astronomical ways new things that entirely changed the world of music were introduced if you were to play you know some new wave from the 80s to somebody in like the 60s they would their head would explode and they'd run around and fucking rip their clothes <laughs> off and shit. And what the like, fuck? what the fuck is this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah. that's like a 20 year difference. Meanwhile, it's been however many years since the 80s and basically like nothing changes anymore. He kind of talks about and it's, yeah. I mean, it's pretty true. Like, I mean, we're living in 2021. If you go all the way back to 20 years to 2001 and you play them, you know, what our our weirdest music sounds like right now. It's not really it's all derivative. It's all yeah. rehashing of old yeah. culture and stuff like that. The big example he uses, which I thought was so funny, he puts the Arctic monkeys on blast. I don't he know does. what <laughs> these young men did to Mark Fisher. <laughs> but like this is like his last book on ghosts on his way out of this life. And he's like, one more thing. Fuck the Arctic monkeys. That shit could be from 1983. They're hacks. I'm out. <laughs> He did have one example uh, besides the Arctic Monkeys. He had an example that I liked where he said he was walking. I forget the name of the song and I forget the original artist, but he's walking through a mall and he hears like what he thinks is a cover of like um, like a cover of like an older song or whatever, like the original. Well, no, he thinks it's the original, I guess. Right. Um, but he realizes that it's an Amy Winehouse song that actually is a cover and that it's not the original song i guess that it's covering you know what i mean so he gets confused and thinks that this cover is the original and it kind of he kind of talks about like well if you had taken that song back in time like you know 40 years and let people listen to it it would sound a lot like the music that was around then and i think like there's one thing about like we'll get into it but there's one thing about like kind of like going back to the past for inspiration and then there's there's another thing and not being able to create anything new 
right? right? And like Frederick Jameson talks about this a lot in uh, one of his essays that like, it's pretty fucking sad that we can't innovate anything new. What does that say about, you know, our political economy and so on and so forth? But we'll talk about that shit. But yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't, I have to say, I don't know that I totally agree with Mark Fisher here. Mm. Um, granted, I was not around in the 80s when he's talking about, so when I hear the Arctic Monkeys, you look at the dance floor, I think, oh, that's from 2010. But I understand mm-hmm. he saw the video and all those sort of ephemera made him think of the early 80s. Um, I think, though, that arguably nostalgia, particularly in music, is itself kind of an innovation that you don't see necessarily in earlier uh, decades. The fa- You know, you think of uh, sampling, right, in, in hip hop, because when that first started, people were like, well, you're just stealing uh part of another song but no you, they're they're building that was a sample actually from um, <laughs> a percussion uh, track from it's really that's going to be the the sound of the 2040s i think that right there but uh but like when you sample you're you're building on the fact that people already recognize that song and your that that sound and you're playing with it right and i yeah. think that is kind of an innovation i don't necessarily agree that you know, I tend to think time marches forward, right? And we, we keep thinking history is going to end, but things are changing for better or worse. Yeah. Um, I get what he's saying in that there's there's so much more music and there's we have so much more capability now to do different things with uh, different styles and and utilize nostalgia in a way that wasn't done before. But I, I don't I don't know that I totally buy that um, that we're we've stopped changing. You know, yeah, I'm a, yeah. I'm a little on the fence myself because like um, this dude's personal music dual taste was so apparent <laughs> in like, choosing. What, I mean, it was a little bit. I don't, I don't entirely dislike what he was talking about, but I was like, this guy definitely has what he likes, and he's describing what he likes as yeah. important and what he doesn't as not, and it's that's just very subjective, right? But like, and that's my pet. Sorry to sorry to jump in, but that's kind of my pet peeve with theory or not necessarily pet peeve, but just like kind of a frustration, I guess with your, it's like, it's you're, you're making the crux on your art of your argument on a totally subjective thing that can never really be proven yeah. right or wrong. And then proceeding with all these other theoretical. You and know. he, he kind of mentions that too. Cause he does say that like what he's talking about sounds like an older person, like wagging their finger at the younger generation. And something you said, Anders, um, because like, I don't want to get too deep into it, but I want to kind of like clarify, like when he when he talks about nostalgia, he talks about specifically formal nostalgia. Right. Which is, um, I guess, like kind of a term that he kind of infers from Frederick Jameson. He talks a lot about postmodernism and like um, like just to quote formal nostalgia is, uh, quote, it's uh, attachment to the techniques and formulas of the past, a consequence of a retreat from the modernist challenge of innovating cultural forms adequate to contemporary existence. So. I think you actually brought up a good point. You, did, you made me think about it. Like hip hop has totally been about like borrowing off, like, you know, off of like riffs from vinyl records, right. Off of like, um, um, I guess jazz, I guess it was, I don't know if it was jazz, I guess R and B, but rhythm and blues as it actually was, you know, before we got like the crooning whack shit that's out now, but again, my opinion. Right. But that I one think sample that... from full metal jacket where the woman <laughs> says me so horny. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's in a lot of songs. That's that is a lot of 
That is hauntology. <laughs> like she's haunting your trash. She's haunting you. <laughs> I want to bring it to Nancy Reagan. She's the Nancy Reagan of uh, yeah. You got good Andrews. You got the alley oop, bro. Got the alley oop. Let this ghost be. I mean, she. This is like I were joking, but I think you could make it uh, an argument in fisher's own terms here that there's hauntology going on with what's happening with nancy reagan right now she's dead and this is from the past it was so good that it's haunting the american discourse yeah well like much of reagan's existence right yeah Mm. i didn't want to say i guess like before we get too far ahead i guess we will talk about reboots and remakes and stuff and i think that that when we talk about formal nostalgia and this attachment to forms, right? These endless reboots and remakes, I guess, I mean, why the fuck should I care? Right. I don't know. I guess it's entertainment for people, but I would like to think of like, when I try to analyze culture, I would like to apply like, I guess, yeah, cultural Marxism. And I don't know, man, it does kind of worry me, I guess, as a consumer of this media, you know what I mean? That like, why are we like rebooting the same shit that like, you know, I grew up with, right. Or that came out right before I did, you know, and it's not even good. So I don't know, but again, there's that's like, my opinion. Yeah. There's a real, uh, there's something real to the analysis here, which is catching on that. Like the, the way that the economy is run and we are forced to live our lives does trap us into certain ways of thinking, which produce cynical products and uh things that we've already seen before because it's slop we've already had so they know we'll eat it again but uh i think andrews is on to something because like i was saying earlier this is like a severely depressed man right before he kills himself and that does come across in like nothing ever changes or gets better the book yeah that is absolutely that's absolutely true that's right Right. and and one of the points and there's Definitely uh, truth to this about monoculture and big hits, and we don't have the same, you know, pervasive big hits that we used to back in the day. Um, and that's true to some extent. We're certainly more culturally atomized, and that's not all bad necessarily. But there's still like, wop, wet ass pussy. Basically, you know, <laughs> like seriously, throw a rock down the street and you'll hit somebody who's heard of wet ass nah, pussy right. or has at least heard a the name specter or haunts ben shapiro <laughs> <laughs> wet ass pussy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean like and that's i i want to get too far ahead i'll, I'll let you go jay because okay. i don't want to get too far ahead because i think culture like specifically talking about like what does a new kind of culture look like is important to this right and maybe andrews are you just saying like wet ass pussy like as funny as that like maybe like some people like maybe that kind of like reclaiming like decadence which is what culture does all the time right popular culture at least right what was old mm-hmm. or taboo or like you know subversive is now profitable so uh, that's yeah. definitely a big part of it right well mm-hmm. let's work our way through this i yeah, mean yeah. i i think that there's like kind of points in and against for and against uh fisher all through this conversation even within the stuff that he's talking about because like the argument he's kind of making with hauntology in regards to music and the whole end of history thing here is that like our art is you know a product of our the base you know Mm. our material conditions and our material conditions changed at some point in the shift to neoliberalism and it's reflected in the art so instead of having this you know rich tapestry of history you see from the 50s to the 60s the 70s the 80s or whatever you know the 80s forward you kind of have this thing where um so like when he's talking about that adele or that 
uh, is it Adele? I can't remember who. Uh, no, Amy Winehouse. When he's mm-hmm. talking about how, how the production of that song is kind of doing something philosophically odd, where the the producer has a style that is nostalgic. He lives in the 21st century, but he like purposely makes uh, crackling sounds and stuff like that yeah. in his music to um uh, to to uh, replicate you know, the actual cracking sounds that were imperfections at the time in the eighties, but now are like fetishized or whatever. Um, that That's kind of like when you like, wa- there's something that kind of drives me crazy, but I also enjoy, which is in Brooklyn, a new bar opens up and it's like, it's new and it looks like it's been there for a hundred years and they get <laughs> out of it because yeah. they know that that's what people want to drink in is a place yeah. that looks like it's had the ship eaten out of it. So they keep bringing like weathered wood and stuff. Like <laughs> and you're like, I'm on, I'm very conflicted when I go into these places. Cause I'm like, this is fake, but also I'd rather drink in here than like a new building. Like it looks like a fucking office or whatever. So, you know, can I, can I add uh, to that, man? Cause like, yeah. Yo, like, I mean, like, there are probably a lot of leftists don't have my disease passion for sneakers, but I'm a sneakerhead, right? Like, well, I love you talk about this in your piece. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, right. I love sneakers, man. And like, there's been this trend, and I even got like a pair. Um, there's been this trend where there's like a pre-yellowing, a pre-aging of the midsoles of these sneakers because over time, like, if you have like a pair of Air Jordans, like original Air Jordans from '85, or even if you have a pair of like you know sneakers that have that certain, I guess, like kind of midsole. I don't know what material it is. But over time, it starts to oxidate, right? It starts to yellow, right? Or oxidize, I guess. It starts to yellow. So, like, brands, like, sneaker brands like Nike, especially with their Air Jordan line, like, Virgil Abloh, rest in peace, uh, just passed away. He was supposed, he came out, actually, right before he died. Nike came out with this Air Jordan 2 that, like, not only has pre-age yellowing, which he went deep into Nike's vaults to, like, find this Air Jordan 2 low that was actually autographed by MJ, and he replicated the cracking of the, the midsole because these midsoles crumble over time like they don't last, you know. So the same way, like I said in my piece, you can buy a pair of jeans that already look worn. We see these things in fashion. You know, we yeah. see what I guess uh, Mark Fisher called the refurbishing of the old, which like you were saying, Jake, it's like, man, dude, like I could just buy these sneakers and beat them the fuck up until they look like this. But that'll take like 30 years. Like, don't I want to look cool? You know, there's something appealing right. about that older aesthetic that I don't know what it is, whether you walk into a bar, or put on like a pair of, you know, brand new but vintage sneakers, you know? Yeah. And if you want to go full into his galaxy brain here, I mean, the argument might be these sneakers immediately evoke like my connection to a moment in history where yes. communism could have fucking happened in the eighties or whatever. <laughs> oh yeah. Dude. Uh, I think like that, man. I think like that, man. Like with the, like I love air Jordan ones, you know, I have a Soviet Jersey. I'm like, yeah, dude, like I'm rocking gear that like, you know, when the Soviet union was alive and rocking, you know, it's fucking diseased, but like, that's the whole branding of nostalgia that these companies do. And they're very aware of, you know? Yeah. Well, we have like really powerful images and stuff that we collectively love. And like it, you know, I don't know the brains of fucking fascinating, powerful thing. Maybe it really is that we love shit. That's like stuck really hard in the cultural zeitgeist, like fucking star Wars or something like that, yeah. because it does have all this meaning and stuff. And it, it does mm-hmm. like make us think about a time in our history where, you know, the world could have gone in a different direction or something like that. Maybe that's why the new star Wars is kind of suck is because <laughs> there's disjointed in that way. And they don't really make any sense. Uh, they, they're harkening back to the 70s but not really i don't know but so okay so the uh, uh, those are points for um fisher i guess a point against him i guess is like 
I would say by his own definition, he talks about all this shit and he talks about how like he's British also, by the way. So like <laughs> everything he talks about is British in this, which is why I didn't get like half his fucking references. But I <laughs> a little bit about British music. And uh, he talks about how in like the 90s, I guess there was kind of this battle between Brit pop and like weird uh, jungle drum and bass, massive attack type shit that he's clearly really into. And he's kind of laments that like Brit pop won and blur and Oasis kind of became what the UK was known for. And these things are really nothing new. They're just white guy fucking prancing around on stage doing rock and roll shit nothing new entirely uh but he talks about what he likes about drum and bass or jungle or whatever which is that you know the, i was gonna say this when it happened so earlier podcast alex tack knocked something over and you heard this like clank 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 sound or whatever <laughs> apparently what's going on in the evolution of that type of music is so when people first had the ability to isolate sound and like use fruity loops and uh, pro tools and stuff like that. And they're on their own and at home and shit like that. They would take like something like that. And then like, there, there's like one recording of like a, somebody doing something with a drum that became like the entire basis for a genre of that type of music. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly which one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Louise, she knows about it. She's from fucking Miami. <laughs> oh, that's like uh, in star Wars too. One of the, one of, one of the guys, the stormtroopers falling off the railing, that scream they use over and over again. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, the Wilhelm scream is what that's called. It's in like every Wilhelm scream. Oh, shit. That's in SpongeBob all the fucking time, man. Yeah, it's yeah. like breaks the leg or some shit like that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, so like that happens, which is something that you couldn't do, you know, 20 or 30 years beforehand because you didn't have the technology to isolate it. And then also like they would like slow down sounds and shit like that and stretch them out and do all these things and then synthesize them into a type of music that like the point of it was that it was new. And the reason that it was new is you could never have done it before is that like, these are sounds you like a human cannot make with an instrument, like Mm -hmm. all that, like long, you know, wow, wow, shit that I guess type of music you're going to (laughs) talk someone's head off on fucking Coke for hours. (laughs) Noise music. Very familiar with that in Atlanta. (laughs) But like, that is an example of this fucking the the needle of musical history continuing to move forward in a way that he's saying didn't so can i I can i push back a little bit against that a little bit um of course all right so all right maybe not so i guess what you're saying is that using technology like that didn't exist before right in this example to isolate a sound and magnify it that you couldn't do before right that a human being couldn't make that noise um and i hate to keep going back to the text this is why people should read it but like actually this is I read the original text that Mark Fisher references, which is, again, Frederick Jameson. But he talks about, like, Star Wars, for example, right? And how Star Wars is a pastiche, um, I guess. Not a parody, but sort of a... We don't even have to get on, all into that. But I guess it's it's a it's um, a recreation of the sort of Pulp Fiction kind of, like, shows that, like, you know, uh, I guess our parents or grandparents used to watch. That used to come on Saturday mornings, right? Except... The only difference now is, you know, it's not really the plots. Um, I mean, I guess it's not really this this kind of heroic story, but it's more the technology that's been used. Right. So I think that kind of goes back to that idea of refurbishing the old where, like, it's of course, it's very possible to use this technology to, like, create something new, whether it's music or movies. But 
for whatever reason, it feels like that's happening at a slower pace than it used to. And now this technology is being used in music, for example, like something like Synthwave to recreate sounds from the past or Star Wars to recreate that Pulp Fiction adventure space opera, you know, that all of our parents loved. And, you know, I guess those stories never go away. Right. But I guess it's just the technology kind of like not being used to innovate, but to like renovate. Am I saying that right? I don't fucking know. Mm. But yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there is the, uh, I think it was a pretty standard complaint a lot of people have, but I was just, you know, for the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, I decided to watch Pearl Harbor 2001 (laughs) and uh, also Tora Tora Tora, which is a much better movie uh, from 1970. And uh, that's a Hanukkah movie? (laughs) Folks, it's a comedy show. I'm sure some people watch it as a Hanukkah tradition in eight in eight parts because yeah, long. there you go. But uh, <laughs> but it just looks so much better the older the older movie because they're using actual explosions and actual planes and shit. But, you know, here and there they they do try to use the the old school like f- film background and it looks fake. But mm. so but as a whole, so much better than. Then Pearl Harbor, and you could say the same. I think of the Star Wars movies, frankly, like the the ones in the seventies where they're yeah. using the actual little figurines instead yeah. of doing a hundred percent computer animation on, on yeah. everything. That's like in Come and See uh, when that boy hides behind that cow, and then the Nazis machine gun through the cow, and they kill the cow in real life to film it with a Gatling gun. Did they that really kill the better. cow? Yeah, that movie's fucking nuts because everything you see in it, like they just like did. <laughs> <laughs> and it scared the shit out of oh, everyone. It, in wait, it. this is that Soviet anti-war film, right? That everybody was talking about a few weeks ago for some shit. I don't know. Yeah, and the star of the movie is like a young boy. By the end of filming it, his hair is white. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not watching that. <laughs> My good. point is, the cow in that film looks much more compelling than the cow they used in Kung Pao Enter the Fist, <laughs> which is a digital recreation. Yeah, the one that you got to kill the cow for art, you know. <laughs> you gotta kill the art for art. Yeah, I mean, like, thing, I don't, like, I don't generally approve of killing animals for art, but I, cows we've already declared full scale war on. Like, exactly. you just use that hamburger at the end, I guess. I right. don't know. It's yeah, not Hindu. They're fair game. Yeah, you know, this gets talked about a lot in like horror, where like the golden era of horror and especially like body horror shit. Uh, was like the Cronenberg, like the fly era of practical effects where they were making all this stuff out of plaster and silicone and stuff. And then yeah. doing a squirm shit with your fucking head. And- <laughs> <laughs> it's and so like- funny to imagine like an old director being like, I'm doing Sarah squirm shit <laughs> for making art. Yeah, but yeah. like it looks that shit looks really cool. And nowadays they'll remake like those old movies and like they look like lame. play-doh it looks like play-doh or plastic clay people in special effects it looks lame as fuck yeah and most of the time it's because it's cgi and the reason yeah. it's cgi is because this is where like the base comes into the the equation it's because they it costs less to yeah. do it a certain way and you know the economy is what it is now and it's completely changed and there's like no you can't make experimental you can't take any risk in film anymore above a certain budget so everything that gets made has to be made a certain way and like maybe that is what shapes things to be these like weird echoes of the past Mm -hmm. well that yeah 
that brings up another point Mark Fisher makes about about the base, about how in uh, Britain specifically before the 70s and 80s, artists got grants and they could go to art school for free and yeah. you could be a working class person. And he says, you know, your parents would tell you, don't go to art school. It's a waste of time. And you could say, fuck you. I'm going to do it anyway. And now you can't really do that unless you want to become a debt peon for the rest of your life. You know, so it's the fact the class structure of art affects the content we see and the market based character of it uh, affects, I think, the derivative. I, the mm. extent that he is right about things being derivative, I think that's the primary factor there. Well, Anders, you, you brought up a really good point. And like, you know, one thing that like and, and to kind of uh, go off of your point too, Jake, one thing that like I kind of like couldn't really make a one to one example is like when he's talking about like this uh, welfare state that, you know, existed, that it's now emaciated and how it really did support artists. Right. Um, just in terms of housing. Right. Even a basic, basic thing like somewhere you need somewhere to live. Right. You also need time, like the mental creative time to work on these things. Man, I was like, dude, this is where like, you know, this British motherfucker, man, I was like, dude, I like tried to look up one to one analogies, like whatever art program FDR did. But it wasn't the same thing. Right. Like the United States never really had that welfare state. I mean, I guess the New Deal. Right. But even that was nothing compared to what, like, you know, the UK and other like European countries were doing like post-World War Two. So, like, that was one thing that bugged me out as like a Yankee. Right. I was like, well, dude, like you can't go back because what Fisher is saying is to return to this model of social democracy of the 70s and the 60s. Right. Basically, is kind of what he's saying. Right. To reclaim these lost futures. But motherfucker, like I'm an American, like we don't we didn't really have I don't I mean, of course, there was a lively artistic creative culture in the United States, mostly facilitated by black Americans. But like you don't really have that kind of like welfare system that existed for people to flourish as creatives. You know, I don't I don't know if this if y'all feel this way, but it feels like like the big Hollywood film industries have had a chokehold on that industry since the beginning of like, you know, the silent film, you know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. really, yeah. Well, in yeah. a way, I, I feel like in America, the artist is the ultimate seen as the ultimate entrepreneur because mm, it, right. like the idea that you would give public taxpayer dollars to somebody who's making art is just absolutely absurd to, yeah. I feel like most Americans. So if you manage to pull it off and get people to give you money for your art, then you're a genius. But everyone else who tries and fails at that is just a joke who should not be taken seriously. Mm. And uh, like, yeah, it's, it's weird. I feel like because Mark Fisher's British, like he's kind of making an argument from over there based on the, you know, seeing it from that perspective where he's saying like, it's tragic that the the future that was lost was specifically that one of social democracy before like Thatcher in England and shit like mm-hmm. that. And I think it, that sounds, it sounds weird. It, it reads weird from my perspective being over here. Same. I, think you're, I think you're right, Aaron, that like he's seeing it as there's kind of one true art and it, it's being lost. But I, American art has always been fundamentally different from British and from everywhere else. And like one example of that is uh, stand up comedy is like uniquely an American art form. And I don't mm. i am like a nationalist when it comes to stand-up comedy i don't <laughs> think people outside of this country know how to do it and i think it's kind of a 
monster. Like it's a monstrous <laughs> thing that's a byproduct of this individualistic fucking cowboy gunslinging entrepreneurial society that we that have. She would but have the balls to go up there and like just fucking riff like in front of fucking people with no sense of humility at all. Like you mean yeah. is that yeah? yeah it's very American. That's like riding trains all night and just jumping into different places to do it for drink tickets and shit like that. And for whatever reason, it produces people. They're able to do this art form that arguably destroys you as a person in my experience. But like when you see British people do it, they're like they're just doing one man shows. And that's it's like not. But that's not that's not totally true. That's true of of Edinburgh. But you look at Frankie Boyle, Stuart Lee. I, there it's are a true, lot of- it's a, as a cultural trend. It trends more one man showy. No, but that's, so, that's not true of people that's that are not like, true of all of Britain. That's I'm not. That's, I'm exaggerating. I'm saying all. Well, you're saying the mainstream. You're saying like the mainstream. Jake is what you're saying. I'm just saying it tends that way. Like it's weird. You have British people that visit British comics will visit New York, and they'll be like, um, you know, like like they'll be doing their Edinburgh shit like at like bar shows that we do here, and we're like. No, no, no. You're supposed to also have jokes. Like just it's I'm not saying I'm exaggerating a little bit. Jake is a, right I, and you're I, triggered. I told you're you I'm being a fucking sad. nationalist chauvinist about this because it's the one thing I let myself really be a Nazi about is it's my art form. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> but but you know, I'm fucking around to some extent. But I think I think that it's the reason that the fucking thing is shaped differently in like different countries, and it's specifically at its peak like w- pure itself in America. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. And not to cut you off, let me ask you a question. Because maybe this, this is, I don't know if this is jumping ahead, but whatever, it doesn't matter. You think somebody like, all right, Andrews, I'll ask you this. Does someone like a uh-huh. Dave Chappelle exist in, does someone like a, fuck, that's not a good example either. But Dave Chappelle, let's just <laughs> use his, I was going to say Louis C.K., but it's probably not a good example. Does, yeah. does, does like, like, we- is, does someone like Dave Chappelle exist in the UK? Is this like a yes, thing? yes, yeah. Frankie Boyle? I don't know who that uh, is though. His yeah, he doesn't. It, well, that's the thing is he's a brilliant comedian, and he's not. He does not do the one man show thing at all. But he's a brilliant comedian. But if you're an American, you only get half of his jokes because they're so specific to to Britain. Yeah. But half of them are you are really funny and are like cutting okay. cultural commentary and he's not doing the, the sure. one he's not doing a, you know, but consider this the other, the other big British example, Eddie Izzard. Okay. He's still doing jokes that we would recognize as jokes here in the West, in the, <laughs> in the wild, wild West. We understand he's doing a, he's having a laugh mate, but the, the, the aim of an Eddie Izzard versus a Dave Chappelle is a completely different art form because one is attempting to create high art and then the other one is attempting to create like this American bar art thing that only like is happening here. Yeah. yeah. So I don't yeah. know. I mean, we could sit here and nitpick all day and come up with like fucking uh, exceptions to the rule. Like, you know, oh, Stuart Lee's another one, right? That's kind of a, he's a comic. Like, sure, he's not a fucking storyteller. But, but my point is more just about the, the thing being, sh- the form being shaped by the base, right? Yeah. And so, like, yeah. 
another just before I get out of this or mm. before I cede the floor here to what we can argue about stand up <laughs> fucking day, I just wanted to mention this other thing that I thought uh uh you know expressed this pretty well or illustrated it, which is uh there was this fucking article that went really viral last week in the New Yorker, this piece on um what's his face? The Jeremy Strong guy who plays oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Kendall on succession. And there's a story in it. So his he's a big method actor and his hero is Dustin Hoffman, and he tells a story about Dustin Hoffman when he's filming Marathon Man, where apparently, so D- Dustin Hoffman's doing this scene with Lawrence Olivier. Dustin Hoffman's American, Lawrence Olivier is British, right? And what Hoffman does is he's got a he has to look like kind of rough and sick for a scene, so he just stays up for three days, like drinking and doing coke and partying and shit. And then he goes and films the scene. And he looks like shit, and he's like, you know, well done in the method acting, right? Lawrence Olivier turns to him and he goes, uh, "Good God, man, haven't you heard of?" Acting right, and that mm. like illustrates oh. the split pretty well, which is that mm. there's entirely two different conceptions of like how to make art, you know. And, and mm. the 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 Dustin Hoffman one, I think, arguably is like shaped by like fucked up American economic shit of like you yeah. have to be this driven psychopath to you know to rise above everyone else around you and shit or whatever. It's funny because um, I've had two different acting teachers tell me that story, and one tells it, you know, that way that like uh, Olivier was like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" And but uh, I had another one who was like, and he Olivier thought it was so cool, like that this guy. <laughs> it is a yeah. little cool. This seems like a very colored American perspective too. Like actually, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone I, was arguing about that Jeremy Strong thing last week, and it was split. I mean, some people were like, yeah. that, that's isn't that how you make a good fucking show?" And some people were like. That's annoying. You shouldn't do that. You should be a better actor and not have to do that. It's like, you know, it's there's no right answer here. I mean, right. I think yeah. he personally is a weirdo and like has to do that on a personal level, but you shouldn't. And that's the thing that drives <laughs> me crazy about theater people is uh, I remember once I was in a show where with a rubber gun, it was made out of rubber, no ammunition, nothing in it mm-hmm. whatsoever. And I was just kind of toying with it, just like, feeling it, you know, because I had to carry this in the show, getting a sense for what it was. And this uh, guy who was in charge of, like, the props or whatever came up to me and he's like, hey, man, um, so you're supposed to be treating that like it's a real gun. Oh, my fucking God. So you're going to need to put your finger uh, not on the trigger and uh, just be really, really fucking careful. It's like, it's not a real gun! It's, it's not like, a I'm real so, gun. I'm is sorry. he trying to? Is he trying to get you prepared for? For is he trying to get you prepared for like uh, treating it as a real gun in the actual play itself, or he's just being a weird third theater? Well, person? yeah, it's it's like a it's a pervasive philosophy that whenever mm. there's a fake gun, uh, and if, if this was a real gun, I would completely agree. But it, yeah. even if there's a fake gun, you have to. Everyone on set needs to be. Uh, consumed by the conceit that it is real and could kill somebody at any time and it's just like this collective you know thing yeah. you have to convince each other of and it's like that's fine if you want to do that i'm not going to do that that's right. well, not you, how- you know who else didn't take that advice alec baldwin look who you right. are that was a real gun but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. i mean i'm kind of on the prop master's side here if he, he alex baldwin probably fucked around like that with a million fake guns and then just picked up a real gun and it just supports a habit, you know. Fucking dumb to realize it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that was I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was ultimately it was his fault as a as a producer. But uh, <laughs> apparently the the prop master, the gun person there, the gunslinger or whatever, was like was very reckless with uh yeah. with weapons. It wasn't and union, I don't think either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, speaking of producers, <laughs> I'm going to do a segue like Anders. Okay, so I was thinking about this because one of the things that Mark Fisher does in this book is he talks about remakes a lot and reboots and stuff like that and how they land in this uncanny space where like it, you miss the essence of something when you try to reboot something that's from the past or like the 70s or whatever mm. and you put all these like shiny veneers on it and stuff that that try to make it like uh you know look authentically he talks about michael sheen's acting and how like in his pursuit of just look like matching the verbal ticks of who's ever he's playing in a movie he misses the point which is to recapture like the essence or whatever and um a lot of that is then deconstructed uh you know in, in ways that make you realize like oh the, the second version is bad because it doesn't like it doesn't speak to the fucking the socio-economic political bullshit yeah. yada, 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 the base room, yeah. right so like um he used a bunch of british examples but i was thinking about this because they made cowboy bebop into a live action thing trash everyone hated it fucking trash uh, I, I i enjoyed it. it i just imagined i was watching a dvd extra the whole time <laughs> I, seriously i was like this is, doesn't matter it doesn't undo the whatever. <laughs> But it ultimately was bad, and I think a big reason it was bad is illustrated in this thing that happened where they interviewed uh, fucking the one of the producers on the show, this guy Andre Nemec, and his whole thing was that he said the show is good and we wanted to make it look really fun and yada yada and be like fun and bubblegummy because we wanted to avoid, this is the quote, painting a dystopian picture of the future and if you like the show Bro, we live in it we already live in that dystopia like what the fuck are you running away from but right anyway, also sorry, Go ahead. well i mean like this is i think is a pretty good example of this thing that fisher was talking about because he's like i mean the original cowboy bebop came out in 1998 and it's you know kind of ambiguous like what the essence of it is reflecting but like mm. it's it's a sci-fi thing it's in the future mm. but it's a great fucking show because it's, I mean, it really resonates with, I think, millennials because it's like you got these fucking people in their, you know, kind of early to mid lives. They're all in like their 20s or 30s and shit like that. They're they're uh, bogged down with inescapable debt. They're essentially doing gig work. So it's really fun to watch because it's <laughs> like, you know, the most um, like kind of exaggerated, fantastical version of our dumbass careers. You know, yeah, they're doing yeah, gig they're work out. in space. Yeah, right. you'd be getting a closer approximation making them all PAs on Mars. Right. It's basically <laughs> what it is. It's fun to watch when you're in your 20s and you're working fucking bullshit jobs or your 30s or your 40s or fucking, you know, our entire lives, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's also, I mean, we're, uh, we kind of don't have this thing that boomers had where like they're like, and then you turn 30 and they give you a real job and you're set for the rest of your life. We kind of have this perpetual like thousand yard stare thing to the end of time. And that show has that in, in, the reality yeah, yeah. that it's set in. I mean, the, the moon blew up in the original fucking <laughs> Cowboy Bebop, and they're all just like floating through space, wondering what the fuck is going to go on with that. Earth has been trashed, you know, and there's still like, and I think this is what he was getting at. There's because this guy, I think, is a tech dork. In the original Cowboy Bebop, it's, you know, it's in the future, it's in space, but every once in a while you'll see like um, somebody like pick up a cup noodles and then like use a space thing to fry it, to cook it yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's, 
not supposed to make you feel good. Like, I think that's supposed to be like, wow, capitalism still exists. And, you know, they're all the brands are still around and shit. That's bad. But this guy's a tech dork who thinks capitalism will solve everything. So he's yeah. like, that's good. Right. And that's why he like missed the point entirely because. So I guess what I'm saying is I think this hauntology thing that Mark Fisher does definitely applies to the the dissonance between the original Cowboy Bebop and this mm. dumbass Netflix show they made. Like they made I, it look like they made the John Cho's hair look like spikes, <laughs> sure. Yeah. But they but, missed the point, you know. But see, there's there's like there's the flip side to these reboots and remakes that um Fisher talks about. Like, he talks about nostalgia films or like nostalgia like media, you know. And the best example I could think of is Stranger Things, right? Mm. Like, so I know Cowboy Bebop, like, takes place in, like, this future, this retro future, because it was, uh, came out in the ni- 1998. So it's kind of what, you know, we would imagine, I guess, the future would look like, which still does look like the future, but it also deals with, like, kind of the essence of, I guess, like, I mean, I don't know if it's too much to say, but I guess, like, towards the, the end of the 20th century, all of the anxiety, right, that people had, right? But it sort of like puts in this fantastical futuristic world. Like, I think on the flip side, like, whereas the Cowboy Bebop, uh, the Netflix show is not successful because it doesn't really like address that the essence of what that show was, especially for like, you know, people that are like in their 20s and 30s. Like Jameson talks about the nostalgia film. And I think Stranger Things is a perfect example because people like that because not only is it almost like. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 80s, but it, it seems to be a very accurate depiction of 80s culture, of technology, of in the newest, the third season of the social anxieties of the time of the Cold War. But I think that people vibe with these sorts of like films that either take place in the past or kind of have like this. I think Drive is another example. And this is not an original example I'm bringing up. Um, I think Fisher or. Maybe another writer I'm thinking of, Grafton Tanner, has another book on nostalgia. Drive is takes place in kind of like the 21st century, right? But it very much has like 70s, like late 70s, early to mid 80s vibes to it. Like even the font, like the first thing you could look at, right? And see that kind of like um, that like uh, Miami's like 80s sort of font Vice City shit it has going on. Like. Yeah. Those films are equally as seductive, but at least what they do is sort of address these material social concerns at the time, which is why like something like Cowboy Bebop. I mean, if you're not if you're trying to make it campy, if you're not trying to address like the paranoia that people had at the time, then I mean, I don't think it's going to be good. Right. It's not going to be faithful to the source material. Right. And you might as well call it something else. You know, Mm. I don't know if any of that made sense, but I think the nostalgia thing is really interesting to me because. I watched the last season of Stranger Things. And I was like, man, why can't I stop watching this? I wasn't even alive in the 80s, man. You know, but it's yeah. just like what it, what the show it's not it's not being it's not being like heavy handed with it. You know, it's very seductive in that way. You know. Right. That's yeah. I was thinking about how. So I I have uh, sort of uh, an obsession with the 1996 presidential election has, has been. You don't say it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's never come up on the show before. Yeah, not at all. I've been listening for a couple of years. It's never come up. At all. What but about this, it specifically? Are you, are you haunted by it? Would you say? Yes, I, I truly am because that's the first election I remember. Uh, but I got I started getting really fascinated by it in like 2008 uh, because I think that if you really want to understand your place in history, you got to look back like 10 years because. Okay. That's 
the the part that always kind of gets covered up. That's the blurriest part. You know what I mean? Because it's like the fashion of like ten years ago is still a little bit too close to now to really separate from now. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. And like, especially looking back as a kid in the aughts, looking back at the nineties, it was just a sort of a parallel universe because nine eleven changed the paradigm so much, just just culturally, politically, artistically, everything. So it was like this thing where everything is looks like today almost, but something is just way different. The way that that sort of anxiety you're you're talking about. Um, sorry, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's uh, that yeah, that's kind of a hauntology. In itself, it's like to, and this kind of goes back to how you know the specter of of Marx that Derrida was talking about the the time that is the period that's supposedly ended and, and gone is still alive and well with us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one one thing too, I want I have to bring this book up if we're going to talk about Ghosts of My Life. Um, just people should also check out the Circle of the Snake by Grafton Tanner. Um, he actually lives in Georgia, and um, I I bought his book for my piece and. One thing that he talks about is pre-recession nostalgia, right? And this is the mode that we're trapped in, right? We're trapped in pre-recession nostalgia, which is everything up until like the 2008 crash, right? So like the first decade of the 21st century. And it's also before, um, you know, 9-11. It's also before like Web 2.0, you know, the digital interconnectedness, the online world that we have now. And we've been trapped in this like since like i mean i would say since like the 2010s right like we've kind of come off of this like still pining for you know not as far back as the 70s i mean yeah sure but i think because like our generation is culturally dominant you know or i guess this we're the ones that are being catered to by content creators right that's i guess what i mean as consumers like yeah man it's like this is why you had like um you know uh reboots this year that went from like sex in the city to like sure i guess like um prince of bel-air which is like way before like the recession but still very much within our lifetime you know like it's not necessarily that people are pining for the 70s you know people are specifically pining for the 80s and the 90s Mm. and that's the generation that like the decade that we grew up in you know um like i was talking about the last dance in my piece and i was like Bro, I don't even I never even watched basketball. Right. But I'm watching this and there's like like really the only way I could describe it is like there's almost like this visual kind of phenomenon that's attributed to nostalgia where I almost imagine things differently. Like I'm not saying like in a grainy 90s sort of like videography sort of way. Right. But it really does kind of guess for lack of a better word, color my perspective of that time. Yeah. Where it felt like the 90s, like we were we thought that the future was right around the corner in the nineties, right. Leading up until like the end of the 20th century. And then I don't know, man, after nine 11, after the recession, it almost feels like things kind of stopped. Like, like yeah. culture slowed, but time sped up. Right. Is an analogy that Mark Fisher uses, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that is kind of interesting, what you're talking about is uh, like, you can be nostalgic for a thing that a, you don't like you didn't you weren't there for or be like literally never happened yeah I, that kind of is going on with like um i remember like when biden was running for president and basically like his entire pitch was just like 
I'm gonna undo time. I am a time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm an archon from outer space. <laughs> the and Republicans I'm- are gonna forget the last sixty years, and they're gonna come to our side. That's what's gonna happen. Yeah. We're bringing yeah. MGMT back. <laughs> But it was crazy because it was like, if you're looking at this as a leftist, you're like, but that's the thing that directly preceded all this horrible stuff happening. So, like, you know, that's a bad idea, right? We're going to do it again if we go back eight years. We're going to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was the flip side of Trump's Make America. It was the flip side of make, Trump's Make America Great Again. It really was. was That was what I was going to say. Is it like MAGA stuff is like, you know, a lot of people who are like really into it because it harkens back to like a weird you know blip in history that was not static but he's arguing it was it it's a lost future mm-hmm. was uh you know the 1950s like fucking suburban you know we have all this money from world war ii bullshit mm-hmm. but like a lot of people who buy into it like are like like mexicans and shit like, <laughs> yeah. fucking care? like why are you feeling nostalgic about this thing so there's this kind of weird like three-point turn you make with <laughs> with hauntology where you're, it's not a direct line it's like you go and then you bounce off at one point and you're like oh i'm I, I, i'm gonna i'm nostalgic for that thing that i kind of suspect is around that corner over there but i yeah. wasn't actually there for you know i would like to be nostalgic for a nice thing i heard about yeah, yeah. It's it's a mat. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's just like one of my. I feel like this stuff is kind of cyclical, and that like one of my first memories is from the '90s of bell bottoms, which were from the '70s. But every 20 years, and I've heard this from fashion people, the you you get a throwback, like at least one article of clothing, and that was huge when I was like you know five or six. Was bell bottoms, bell bottoms, bell bottoms, And, and I associate it with like. Oh, that was the thing in the '90s, but it was spiking off of the '70s in the '90s, you know. But isn't yeah. it? And maybe the like, maybe the segue. I mean, I don't like time. I think time is an interesting concept with ontology. And to kind of piggyback off of you, Anders, like again, like I like streetwear. You know, I like I like '80s like retro Jordans and shit like that. But like, dude, it's like the fashion world is going back to now. It seems the late '90s and the early 2000s where baggy is cool again, right? Mm. And it's always, the 80s and the 90s have always been popular, but it's specifically these two th- early 2000 styles where I'm talking about like double XLTs with like baggier jeans and stuff like that. Are we getting Jenkos back? Nah, yeah, don't, we don't need to go that far. We don't need to go that far. Not yet, <laughs> hopefully not yet, not yet. But like, it feels like, the interesting thing about hauntology to me is like, and the internet in general, which is like kind of powers like this whole nostalgia industry and hauntology is like it collapses time right so much so and maybe that culture has slowed so much that like i saw i saw a um uh, an ad for like the not an ad but i heard the 90s show was coming out right yeah. and okay i guess like the 90s are as far back in time as the 70s were when that show came out i guess right. but not really it doesn't really feel like it because it feels like, yo, what the what the fuck really happened in the '90s? You know what I'm saying? What really happened in from the year 2008 to 2021, right? Like, it doesn't really feel like a lot, and that's uh-huh. the weird thing with hauntology. Like, in the internet, I guess it collapses time, and things feel much closer, you know, than they actually are. You know, it's almost well, extra entire... reminiscent. I sorry, yeah. I just uh, I like we just did '90s memorabilia. 10 years ago. Does, everybody, does nobody remember that? We did. We spent the entire time talking about the 90s? 
<laughs> you can't do it anymore. We just did it. Oh, yeah. Like all the memes that were like, remember the 90s? Or you know whatever? you're a 90s kid when you wear those pants. Really? Yeah. I, you know you're an early 2000s kid. It's like, what? Yes. You're like, what? <laughs> it's yeah. coming. It's coming. But, it's every 20 years. That's my, yeah. Yeah. The, I, the argument, the entire argument of like ghosts of my life is what you just said, though, is that like we something is happening post the neoliberal turn where this process that, you know, you could I mean, you could argue was eternal, but it's like speeding up so much that it is fundamentally changing. Like if if it used to take an entire lifetime for a cycle to happen where bell bottoms came back, then you as a person would notice that one time in your life. But if it speeds up exponentially, it'll be like within the same year, like, oh, bell bottoms are back again. Oh. And then time will be this weird blender <laughs> thing. Kenko's spring. Until it ceases <laughs> to be like a time process. And it'll be because of, uh, you know, I guess a combination of like, technology making everything instant and everything yes. right here and right now and then also this like weird ennui displacement thing that he's describing um everything is just going to i think the argument is that it just flattens out at some point and then yeah. we're just in this space where it stops happening but i don't know i guess like i'm zoomers have me confused about this because they're like wearing fucking blossom hats and bucket hats and shit and they it, i i don't like it and i'm like when i see them i'm like <laughs> no you're being a crotchety old man jake don't be that crotchety old man <laughs> the thing is i am and i can see myself doing that and i'm like but this means that time is still happening right because i'm getting <laughs> old so then we're not in a time blender because I am aging at the rate you're supposed to, I think, right? Well, so, I'm in a blender. You're getting older, but they're staying the same age. Oh, no. Well, like, think, <laughs> think about it like this, man. This is, this is um, again, I got to bring this book up, Circle of the Snake by Grafton Tanner. He has this amazing section called Instant Nostalgia where he talks about Instagram and the mm -hmm. way that Instagram specifically powers the nostalgia industry because, I mean, just the nature of like taking photographs, right, and like, you know, uh, you know, from your day or your week or whatever and posting them. But the fact that you can add on these filters, right, and make things look pre-aged, you know, and the Internet in general, like you're saying, Jake, everything is flattened. So it's like from one vantage point, you know, from your fucking computer desk, your computer, your phone, you can access all of cultural history at once. And what's, I guess, weird with the Zoomers, man, or not weird. I mean, it's like. I guess it's just the trajectory of things. It's like it. I don't know. I could be wrong about this. I mean, any Zoomer listening would be like, "No, this motherfucker's totally wrong." But it's like it feels like they're grabbing right, like from like they're going through a time department store and grabbing things, random shit off the shelves from different decades, and just throwing it into the cart and building something out of that. Maybe, but a lot of it again is powered. Or facilitated communicated through these new technologies you know these new communicative technologies so i don't really know what the fuck is going on with them man it's like kind of like they're this anachronistic generation but also like nostalgic i have no idea man it's weird Viewers, they all look like uh you press random when you're making a tony hawk <laughs> character mm -hmm. or the sims you yeah. get yeah. random yeah. you get random <laughs> yeah 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 that's why he's called it <laughs> well, let me ask you guys this, because this is what I've been thinking about uh, during this conversation is like, I feel like the market plays such a role with, you know, whether it's making cow the Cowboy Bebop, 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 Jesus reboot. Christ. 
uh, or Director like hate mail at Anders. <laughs> I love. I've been watching the uh, anime. It's quite good. The but, anime is uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah or like all these reboots, right? It's it's because oh, this is sold in the past. It's something people recognize. Let's crank out a new one because we know it's going to make money. Um, if the market did not play such a role in everything, including art, fashion, music, etc. What kind of relationship with nostalgia do you think we'd have? Would there be the license to make, you know, movies like Reds, which we discussed on the Patreon this week, which uh, could only have happened within that short period of time before the studios cracked down on on directors having autonomy? Um, well, you're describing you're describing two different things because nostalgia can happen culturally just when you know people be missing the 70s or whatever but the, this thing you're describing where it moves in cycles and you get a new cowboy bebop every 20 years and bell bottoms every 25 years is just market incentives switching gears you know it's not a genuine feeling it's just something right. but how, it's just how, the how, algorithm shifting but right, what would but that genuine right yeah like if communism happened and there wasn't this fucking huge oppressive market force informing everything would the market like would all this because everything is shaped by the fucking market right so like if you take that element and you change it would we have as much like nostalgia i I think i think so man there's um not to go back to my piece but like well no it's actually like Super relevant. Like at the end, I ended. <laughs> I, yo, I wrote. I spent. I spent Please, like, I dude. I spent like fucking like you know like uh, like nine pages complaining about this thing, and then when I got to the end of it, I was like, shit, man. Like I kind of need like some sort of like like panacea. I need some sort of like suggestion as to how to exit what Grafton Tanner calls this culture of recursion, where we're just kind of repeating the same shit over and over again, right? And um, I read this piece by Stuart Hall uh, where he talks about deconstructing the popular. And um, he has this thing that he calls the uh, the dialectic of the cultural struggle that made me think of popular culture in a very new way that I appreciate a lot. And what he says is that the same way that history is never fixed. Right. But it's about a contestation over power, over influence. Um, It's why, like, you know, I'll watch something as a communist that I know is completely geared right to kind of like you know tap at my little like receptors that will invoke empathy or will invoke um sadness or anything like that but at the same time i can watch a lot of shit no matter no matter how base it is i guess on a cultural level and see myself in it as a black man as a working class person and instead of thinking of the working class as these objective depositories where we just dump information to right or the ruling class rather dumps information to uh, into for um, cultural hegemony, like people actually interact with the shit that they watch, right? So like kind of at the end, my, not solution, it's not really original, I guess, but maybe there's needs to be a revolutionary popular culture that seizes on these tensions and fissures. Um, like I was saying before, like, you know, the old becomes new again, right? Like what was once like taboo now becomes profitable. And that happens all the time. And like, Andrews, you were saying this, right? I think like hip hop is like an expression out of, it's not necessarily Marxist or materialist, but it is materialist actually. It's an expression of toying with these fissures, exploiting these tensions, right? Um, In culture. And that's why like, I get kind of like, you know, pissed when like so-called leftist materialists like talk about the culture war. Cause I'm like, motherfucker, it is a war, right? It's a war 
on material grounds that actually fucking matters and we should engage in it. And to think that you can construct an alternative culture outside of the popular mainstream is exactly what podcast and left Twitter and whatever other left media sphere that is inclusive or exclusive and like an echo chamber. That's kind of what we have. Not to call this show that, you know, uh, this is the show other for the dumb, shows. dumb left. Other shows. <laughs> <laughs> Not also the Tribbles as well. We're for the dumb, dumb left too. But you guys know what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree yeah. a lot because I think that like yeah. people are real, like kind of vulgar materialists and just sort of reduce everything to like really bare material terms. There's a tendency uh, and I think it's it's disjointed. It's based on the other a different time in history, especially mm. to to discount uh, the culture war stuff, because, you know, there's a lot of examples of how that has classically been a distraction or it's been a thing that that you're like, you know, they take away all the material stuff and they go here, play with this, you know, yeah, and it's like, argue well, it about this. Yeah, it doesn't work by itself. Sure. Mm. But uh, especially because of just the way technology is played in all this shit, I'm kind of uh, fucking contrarian about this. I think within the left where I'm like, no, like this is a fucking battlefield. The, people wouldn't be so mad about this if it wasn't doing something. Exactly. And I really like the way that you ended your piece with uh, that in mind, because like so much, you know, of Marx is like you, you kind of you've you've got you've taken the wrong message away from like materialism if you read about all this stuff and then your conclusion is wow history is just these gigantic tectonic plates that rub up against each other and then things happen because the ultimate point is and now it's time for you to like engage in this thing and yeah. fucking you know these things only happen if you take a part in it and try to get other people to take a part in it or whatever. And that's true for material organizing and stuff like that. Um, but it's also very true for, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's just ways that we can build little cultural touchstones and stuff that everyone can grab onto that are definitely big parts of the ways that we like navigate our lives. Most of what people do all day is stare at the internet and watch TV. You know, it's exactly. the world we live in now and uh, it helps inform things. And so, you know, definitely don't, don't be somebody who's like, I'm going to, you know, cause the entire revolution to happen with a song I wrote or whatever, but uh, only my friends are going to hear in my Twitter followers, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> You know, obviously that's like that's just jerking off but like um right well it's a, you know the i think i may have said this already at some not this episode but that you know there's that old adage about like well in weimar germany there are a bunch of satirists who were making fun of hitler and uh they didn't stop him from coming to power but it's like okay who came in and got him out right it was the yeah. soviets it was the americans they had images that they were pumped into their brains about who the Germans were and why they needed to be killed, right? It's not everything, but the aesthetics and art and that stuff has has a place. And it's it's often impossible to uh, reduce it and figure out exactly what it's doing, but it's it's there. It's a part of life. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, like part of how I became a leftist is that I, I had a cool teacher who uh in Texas, you were not allowed to teach shit like Howard's in. In I thought you were about to say not allowed to teach. I was like, that sounds about right. <laughs> basically it's, not allowed to teach. It's a Marxist plot. Teacher. <laughs> 
but he would give you Howard. He would give you people's history, like when you graduated. If you were like, you know, in the know, like you knew, go to what's his face, and he's like, wink, wink, uh, and he bought a bunch of copies and he'd give them out, and then you would start your life and go, yeah. holy shit, here's this. He was like Snape or something. He was he like, gave oh, you wow. like Rockefeller chain. He gave you a rock chain, man. It was <laughs> fucking cool. And what it very much felt to me after getting shoveled all the bullshit from the Texas education system in my brain and then having this secret thing passed where you learn about, you know, American socialism and stuff like that. Uh, it very much is like someone illuminated one of the, the lost, uh, what's the term lost, uh, future, future, future <laughs> lost futures. And you go, wait, here's a link back to this thing that you can, maybe go back to and see if you can drag it into the future or try to make it yeah. happen. Or whatever, Rad you know? Radical nostalgia is like another thing um, that's again, Grafton Tanner brings up in his book and I never heard of the term, but yeah, it's, it is what it sounds like, right? It's about remembering like, you know, these resistance movements, right? You know, these, um, these social movements, these revolutions, you know, and sort of like cultivating like a memory of resistance. But like I had a little bit of issue with that because it's like, dude, like all of left Twitter and the online left is all about reminiscing about these haunted. We're haunted by these victories, you know, and like it really gets to the point where you can just kind of sit there and you and I mean, this is in the piece that I wrote, but I mean, I believe it's true. You distort the sacrifices that like the people that came before us, they made, right? You think that times were easier. And that's what nostalgia does, right? It whitewashes things. It blots out the ugly realities for marginalized people, for the working class. It's not enough to just like remember, right? Like when people used to fight, it's like creating something new and creating a culture that comes out of that. And I don't know, man, like, yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot and like it, podcasts and shit and all that shit's great. But like, I think about my mom a lot. My mom's always the barometer, right for this shit you know what i mean and i think about my mom and her political trajectory to the left in the past couple of years and i'm like man there has to be a way that over time but not too much time because we don't have a lot of time um you know with futurelessness and all but like there has to be a way that like i could have somebody like my mom and somebody on left twitter sit in the same room and watch the same media or listen to the same song right that has a revolutionary message of class struggle but it is not beating somebody over the head right there has to be a way to do that you know like hey, TV, mom i need you to sit yeah. down and listen to the pod damn america episode on the hit movie <laughs> reds tell me how it makes you feel i would hope she would never listen to any of the podcasts i record i would hope not didn't anders have a good point about tell her to listen to the first 15 that? minutes of this podcast Remember where we were talking about nancy reggie give it head. <laughs> That'll radicalize your mom. Yeah, about to give you disowned, bro. <laughs> uh, I think Alex is being a cynic. I, there, people do say they turned their mom onto fucking Chapo or whatever. It happens. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's, you know, a lot of people's parents are are not. I've turned a lot legends. of people's moms on. <laughs> <laughs> like to see proof for that statement. The Anders is one or mine. Anders. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, ask. Uh, your own ask my mom that's very rude of you to say <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh man. i wish y'all could have seen Andrew's face right now man your face that's a married woman you're talking about <laughs> pure mischief and dragging through the mud looks like a haunter over here <laughs> <laughs> in hauntology <laughs> his tongue out 
his floating hands. All right. <laughs> Andrew's sticking um, his tongue out at me now. <laughs> Stop it. Turning into a Gengar. Um, all right. Well, I mean, problem with conversations like this is because they could go on. But they could go on for fucking ever. Because yeah. there's just a lot of weird shit he talks about. Like, uh, I'm not even going to bring it up. Because that would be. <laughs> it's too dangerous. <laughs> oh, I know what you're saying. Another 45 minutes rim jobs. She has a whole chapter on that. It's just, uh, it gets into canceled people, and it's like we don't have the time. Um, the time. Oh, there was. Uh, I mean, well, we well, we were over time, but there was the whole. Uh, tech, what we talked about that technology, I guess, and uh, yeah, the whole VR augmented shit, man, that shit's weird, dude. Well, know. let's end on that. How do you think that's gonna play into all this? How do you think the metaverse plays oh, into ontology? Yeah. Dude, it's totally. I mean, first of all, I was talking to I was talking to a homie about this the other night um, at a bar who's into this stuff. He's trying to tell me how this shit works, and I don't know, man. I'm like fucking drunk, so I'm just like, whatever, dude. Um, I'm working on this piece. You should listen to it. He's like, yeah, you know what? That reminds me. But he's talking about this whole VR stuff and augmented reality, and it's like, yeah. First of all, I don't think that shit will ever get to the level I'm about to like talk about, like because I feel like we've been waiting for this shit for like 20 years. But oh, I could for sure imagine that they want to. I mean, yeah, create this like like escape like for people like amidst like social and economic like uh environmental collapse where like yeah you can escape into the past you know i don't know how that's gonna work i don't know if it's gonna be some shit where you're gonna be fucking you know be at like a i mean i don't even know man like a trying to think of an older band from the 90s like going to a concert and being there live like maybe Yeah, yeah, you put on Google Apps and you're at an Eve Six concert all of a sudden, and you're, you're like, e- "What oh, year is it?" Actually, maybe that's not possible because all you need is just a fucking pair of like fucking Oculus headsets, and I don't know, maybe some a treadmill. Why that, you know, anyone watch this? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. What do, what do y'all think, man? I think maybe people wouldn't want to watch it, man. Maybe people wouldn't want to get in that shit. I don't know. I think you're right that VR technology has been coming out for like 30 years straight somehow. Like <laughs> yeah. Every year. It's like, it's finally here. I'm like, I don't believe you. You lied last time. <laughs> Google Glass. But... Damn. You're right. Google Glass went nowhere. I well, they they finished it and it was just like a bad idea. It was the problem. <laughs> you're not supposed to have numbers in front of your eyes. You need well, to I mean, see things. And people were getting. Eyes. People were getting like whacked, like uh, well, not, not whacked, but like very Italian <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> not killed, but at, like you would get whacked on the head and get them stolen, or just oh, punched. Yeah. Oh. You just get punched in the face. The classical my family. But see, y'all, y'all are downplaying it because I wear glasses almost twenty four seven, so I would have no uh, problem with them shits just like popping up and like you know my my, my right frame or whatever. Mm, like mm, I wouldn't yeah. fuck with that. I would have fucked with that. They don't, yeah, it's it, got to be not identifiable, so people can't tell it's because the the Google Glass ones were so oh, obvious. Yeah. It was obvious like, that it was yeah 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 nerd alert. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah you get robbed, motherfucker. Yeah. Nerd alert is one of the programs that comes on Google Glass. I bet and it goes <laughs> off. When you, when if you're you trying one. to rob somebody for the Google Glass, you, <laughs> as like the assailant, have a Google Glass that has an app called Nerd Alert, where you know in close proximity where to. The Poindexter rating <laughs> is through the roof. <laughs> yeah, rob that motherfucker now, <laughs> fifteen feet if, away. If, now. if VR like ever actually really kind of happened and was widely available, and then we just further kind of 
atomized and lonelyfied our lives and instead of staring at your phone all day you just have a fucking virtual boy on your head and you're just a vegetable or whatever there's an argument that can be made that the stuff that he's talked about accelerates like even further and we become further disconnected and don't even perceive time really the way it properly is happening because the part part of this that like i kind of forgot the way he phrased it but part of this is like the reason we're all kind of in this stasis we're just like ah well this feels weird why do i you know feel like i'm floating in space is because uh the process that you had to go through to perceive anything has been completely um like what do you call it uh it's just cut to like streamlined it's streamlined it's streamlined it's like an nth degree now like it's not like before where you had to sit in front of a computer like a gray blocky computer in enter the internet or enter web 2.0 now it's like fucking around you all the time as a phone or it's on your wrist so like it's always a part of you and you walk around with it all the time like yeah what you're saying like that's become just that middleman's cut out like you are you are the internet now you know yeah and mm. so like what is he what, what is like fisher ta- like saying about that though that like what, what is the tragedy that he talks about with like the end of history mm-hmm. being uh kind of a reality and capitalist realism happening and us living in this post neoliberal turn where um everything is meaningless and everything is without like narrative i guess because of this thing he's describing where we you know are everything's decontextualized therefore like we we feel this weird urge to hearken back yeah uh does that i mean i guess guess with vr that would just happen yeah well i mean it's like futurelessness right it's like i mean like i think that's why the pandemic right was I, I, I don't know how to say this without saying it this way, but it's like with the idea with futurelessness is like since 9-11, we're all waiting for the next big thing to happen. Right. And the pandemic was that next big thing where in a way, as hard, this is going to sound so bad, but it almost allayed some of the societal mass paranoia and fear that people had. Right. Because it's like, yo, something bad has got to happen soon. Right. Something bad has got to happen soon. Right. And it fucking did. Like in the United States, we're gonna lose like you know a million people more probably to this pandemic around the world. Who the fuck knows? But like, it's very much like this. This, I guess, the metaverse, virtual reality can combat, but not really. It just engenders more of a belief in this futurelessness because then people don't imagine a future, right? They just recede into the past. And meanwhile, like yeah, like we're dealing with pandemics and we're dealing with worsening climate change and. I don't know if everyone's still waiting for the next terrorist attack, but that too. So it's like, I think our generation feels that the most, man. I mean, I know I feel that shit in my life. Yo. I wake up in the morning. I'm like, man, what the fuck am I going to do today? What's the next week going to look like? What's what's this week going to look like? But projected on like, you know, like a kind of like a longer timeline. Like, yeah, I think everyone has that kind of fear, you know, like we don't know what's going to happen next. And we're all kind of waiting for the next big thing to hit, which is terrifying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of like round us out. I don't know how to end this on a positive note at all. But oh, we're well, fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think about the things that like he's talking about, and the the problem with history. And I think like this is an intractable human problem, and so many people clearly have this fucking up their perspective, especially older people. 
is uh you can't tell how much of it is history and how much of it is you turning 30 or 31 or 32 or 40 or 50 yeah and historicizing the past right yeah yeah and so i very much feel like we're in like a fucked up time right now and i keep thinking about like what it was like like 10 or 20 years ago in my life and how like things happened and there was fun and stuff like that and there was a future and now every day i wake up and i'm just like holy shit well, can i give you a happy analogy to kind of end it on which is not really like happy i mean it is happy for me um yeah man. and this will be good going into a new year i mean this is also the end of the year so we're all thinking about time you we're know? all thinking right. about time and shit man well dude i uh like uh, i have a nephew man who was born a year ago and Ooh, um congratulations and this motherfucker like loves uh loves coco melon a little too much but he just loves life and he loves laughing and just screaming for no reason he's like one and like i don't know man like i don't know if i want kids right but i think that um i think that like especially like at least for me having a child like a young like a baby in my life right and for people who have kids or have like younger siblings and stuff man i think like like a lot of like well, their outlook on the world is just kind of living in the moment, right? And they don't have these fears about the future. And I know I'm not telling people to recede into child, into being a child, but to just sort of like imagine that a future is possible if like my nephew is like happy and smiling and living in the now. And I don't mean to be corny or cheesy or anything, but like, I don't know, man, seeing him happy gives me a lot of joy, even if I don't personally have a lot of joy for myself and my future, but to kind of like be like, oh, no, nah, man, there's got to be a world for him. Right. Like I have to be a part of creating that better world for him. Right. Like he has no idea about like the dangers that he'll, that he'll come across. Like he has no idea and he doesn't need to have any idea. And as he gets older, I don't need to project any of my anxieties about the future onto him, you know, and. I don't know, man. What am I telling people to have kids? No, don't have fucking kids and don't go to a fucking playground and stare and look at children and try to regain the hope for the future by looking at kids. It's creepy and kind of pedophilic. Very much so. Don't do that. But like, <laughs> but like, I mean, I don't know, man. Like that, that's what gives me hope, right? Um, I guess like a uh, sort of a rebirth and a, a new cycle. And I see that through him and I see that with even Zoomers, man. Like they're doing some cool shit. You know, like, Andrews, you were saying earlier, like, that kind of reinvention of culture is always happening. And um, if these kids don't turn into fucking fascists, you know, before then, uh, and not all of them will, then maybe we got some hope for the future, man, you know? Right. It's the youth. I'm going to go to the playground and be like, kids want to talk about dairy. (laughs) Don't do that. In my podcast, you talk about Big Daddy D. No, don't do that, please. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about uh, ghosts of my life? <laughs> you talk about all the things that give me anxiety. No, no, no. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Nancy Reagan? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kate, full circle. That was a really full circle. <laughs> well, right. yeah, I mean, I think the uh, that, let's yeah, let's round up. Never mind. No, no, go ahead, Andrews. I want to hear what you'd say. Go ahead, go ahead. Like the the further we get away from the Cold War and Reagan, uh, the more opportunity we have to create something new, and that's only going to come from a new generation, a new generations, because um, it doesn't really change the haunting of what people thought of uh, the USSR as and the ideas instilled by Reaganism. That's only, that's never gonna that it doesn't even have to end for that to change. Uh, the only way it changes is the people with memory of it 
fucking die. And, you know what? You're damn right, dude. Because yeah. my nephew has no recollection of pre. He has no pre-recession nostalgia. He never will. I mean, he obviously does it now as a baby, but he never will <laughs> because right. he didn't. But I am still haunted by, you know, memories of the Soviet Union, not even just being like a communist. But like, I mean, I was literally born in 1990, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the the year the wall fell. So it's like that shit kind of like reverberates out at least like 30 years. So we yeah. just all got to die. I'm just going to keep smoking cigarettes and destroy <laughs> my body. And then the next generation will not even remember any of that shit. And you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing is that like ghosts are cool. I like being visited by stuff from the past. Sometimes you don't always have to just chase yeah. it around your house. With I'd fuck some ghost pussy. I'd be garlic and shit. And get some ghost head. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, the, ghost the thing about ghosts is they bring, <laughs> they bring you messages. That's all I'm trying to say. There you go. They're like a primitive form of email. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow. That's a, that's a really good tweet. all right let's get the fuck out of here all right Um, let's do some plugs uh definitely aaron plug uh where people can read that piece you wrote and everything man yeah yeah. um so the the piece uh my sub stack is uh, called space light dot substack dot com you can read the piece there i'm gonna try to be writing more and um, listen to the Trill Billy's Workers Party. Uh, listen to that podcast. It's cool. And I'm on it. And it's tight. And uh, yeah. And that's pretty much it. And follow me on Twitter at Paradoomer. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Paradoomer for now. Paradoomer for now until <laughs> I get booted. Nah, if I get booted again, I'm not coming back. I swear to God, man. I can't. Well, do it. I don't <laughs> record. You. She's better officially. <laughs> can't do it. Not even for one second. <laughs> no, I'm bullshitting. I'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> it's been like four times. Already. I got a VPN. I got a VPN for like two years. Like I paid for it. Like I'm already you know prepared. Anyone else got plugs? Uh, Ann Andersley here on Twitter. Dursley one on Instagram. Redacted tonight. It's the other job. And are you gonna? You we're gonna plug the mutual aid thing in DC. Uh, yeah. But if you have okay. it up, you can plug it. No, I don't. I don't have it up. So I'm, I was just double checking. I'm pulling it up right now. Alex, you have anything? Oh, I wonder what it is. Uh, yes, follow me on Twitter at Patak Test Kitchen, your one-stop shop for exciting new flavors. <laughs> and be sure to go on over to Ballin' Out Super sometime to uh, enter our exciting new uh, recap of the Boo Saga. Do you do you like Majin Boo? We're going to talk <laughs> about Majin Boo. I'm very excited for it. He's so big, he turns you into candy, and he eats you. Is he going <laughs> to eat me? I can't wait to find out. And that's my plug for this week. Okay, I found the thing I was going to plug. I have a bunch of shit to plug. Uh, first one, though, is this was tweeted to me. Oh, and by... I plugged Christmas. You interrupted me to plug Christmas? <laughs> Christmas is coming plug... up. You wow. going to plug Kwanzaa, though? You're not going to plug Kwanzaa? That's fucked I up, don't man. know when Kwanzaa is. But me I'm... neither. <laughs> I'm going to plug Kuji Chagalia. The plug Haram. <laughs> One of them is just called Harambe. U- Uji- Ujama. <laughs> <laughs> um, a DC mutual aid group is trying to buy this apartment building so the landlord can't kick out his tenants and they can turn it into affordable housing and mutual aid co-op. It's a heavy lift, but they've already come incredibly far. Please consider donating to this if you can. It'll be linked in the notes. It's from at DC 
W1 Mutual Aids, DC Ward 1 Mutual Aids. It's called the Baldwin House Nest Egg. Um, it is accessible at givebutter.com slash Baldwin House. Oh, this is sick URL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give butter. You had Give to be butter. on the internet early to get givebutter.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know who actually you stone butter.com is uh <laughs> <Nancy Reagan's laughs> okay so uh, if you uh, are one of our listeners who isn't uh, a dude i'm sorry uh, i'm sorry for this whole episode um, <laughs> i uh have a couple of things to plug my other podcast while you mad uh that i do with my friend luisa diaz has been on the show before uh also i'm going on tour with Eve six, what really happening? I'm yeah, my folks come to Atlanta. I think so. Yeah, uh, oh, nationwide yeah. tour. It's in the spring. We're coming everywhere. I'm opening for them, and uh, we are the Union, which is a really great queer ska band. I saw it fest, and uh, nothing is official. I don't know the details yet. Soon we'll have the like actual dates out, but I think we're coming to everywhere major. Um, Hell yeah! So yeah, that's in the fucking spring come check that shit out and if you're in new york uh i think i'm starting a new like stand-up show the first one it's gonna be for my birthday which is in january so the first one's at january 18th at the gutter i'll have all this stuff on my website and my pinned tweet and then since i'm actually getting gigs i will put it on my fucking website but i hate putting shit on my website um because squarespace is a bad program but i'll put it up there so uh but yeah uh, look at my pinned tweet if you are looking for the exact dates on shit like that. January 18th in New York City in Brooklyn at the Gutter, which is a fucking cool bowling alley that's also a punk bar. And then, yeah, come see me open for fucking Eve 6, man. It's That's really happening. Yo, I was that's going to be earlier. tight as fuck, dude. Well, well, I'm I'm I hope y'all come to Atlanta, man. I think we're going to... And I'm going to meet Max Collins from Eve 6 for the first time going on this tour with him, which is insane. Oh. It's insane that he booked me. Uh, this is so <laughs> funny. That in itself, very insane thing to do, which you have to hand it to him. Max is a cool dude, man. I look yeah, forward to seeing how this changes you. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to leave all of you behind. <laughs> After I make the best. hundreds of dollars. Become a superstar. <laughs> yeah. About to become uh, Eve Seven, Eve Seven, new, new band member. <laughs> yeah, we call well, it. Eve Six because there's six of them. Because so. there's six of them. <laughs> All right, <laughs> finished. Uh, finished. <laughs>